Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Brian Stanley. Dr. Stanley is Professor of World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh. He's been here at Beeson Divinity School to talk with us about world Christianity. Uh, he's a world-renowned scholar in the field of missiology and world Christianity, and it's a great pleasure for me to welcome him to this Beeson podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Dean George. It's a pleasure to, to be here at, uh, at Samford and Beeson Divinity School. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about your own background, sort of how you got interested in this field of study and uh, where you came from, a little bit about your uh, background? Right. Uh, I, I grew up in uh, the south of England, uh, south of London, uh, a place called Croydon. I went to Cambridge to study history and stayed on to do a PhD in religious history. My topic was the place of the missionary movement in Victorian religion and how people in Victorian England supported the whole foreign missionary enterprise, the structure of funding, how people went round on deputation tours telling people about missions work, the way in which children and others became very active in the support of foreign missions. So that was the beginning of my um, entry into the study, historical study of foreign missions. And from that PhD, I then went on to write my first book, which was about the links between Protestant missions and British imperialism in the 19th and 20th centuries, a book called The Bible and the Flag, which was an attempt to bring together uh, history and a degree of theological reflection about what the historical record throws up. Now, you mentioned you're from Croydon, and that's where Spurgeon's College is, I believe. Indeed, and that was where I had my first academic post when I uh, uh -huh. completed my PhD. I went to Spurgeon's in 1979, initially to be librarian and academic registrar and to do some church history teaching under principalship of Dr. Raymond Brown, well-known uh, English Baptist historian. So I was had very happy years, 12 very happy years at Spurgeon's College, gradually doing more teaching before I went to Bristol, to the Anglican College, Trinity College, Bristol, in 1991 to teach church history. I also taught in the Baptist College at, at Bristol. One of the books you've written that uh, I've learned much from is uh, The History of the Baptist Missionary Society. Tell us a little bit about the BMS, as we call it, and your interest in writing this book. Well, the Baptist Missionary Society was the first of the English Evangelical Missionary Societies founded at the end of the 18th century. It was an expression of the evangelical Calvinism, which was coursing through the veins of English Baptist life at that time, associated with the great theologian Andrew Fuller and William Carey, who, of course, went out to India as the society's first field. The, the history was commissioned by the society as their official bicentennial history, so it covered the whole 200 years up to 1992, I deliberately slanted it, in fact, towards the 20th century, as I felt that quite a lot of work had been done on William Carey in the early years in India, but relatively little on the later years of the society. 
So there's quite a lot in it about areas like the Congo, India, Brazil in the 20th century, which hadn't been so much covered in scholarship. Does the Baptist Missionary Society still continue today? Yes, it it does. It's slightly changed its name. It now calls itself BMS World Mission. But of all the traditional English missionary societies, it remains the most active in still sending people overseas to work in mission and in partnership with Baptist churches in many parts of the world now. So it's still a major part of British Baptist life. You mentioned the name of William Carey, who will be well-known, I'm sure, to many of our listeners, uh, almost in a hagiographic kind of way. We think of him as the father of modern missions. One of the things Carey uh, said in his life, he had this, uh, what he called, pleasing dream for uh, a coming together of Christian leaders of different denominations to advance the cause of Christ, and he hoped that this would happen perhaps in the year 1810. It never came off in his lifetime, but as we know, a hundred years after that, in 1910, there was a great gathering of missionary leaders and uh, Christian statesmen who came together in Edinburgh, where you now live, for the International Missionary Conference. We've just celebrated the 100th anniversary of that event. Could you try to help us link together that uh, legacy of Cary with what happened in 1910 in Edinburgh? Yes, I mean, in some ways it's one of those happy accidents, providential accidents of Christian history, I think, that that Cary should have had this dream which um, actually Andrew Fuller uh, regarded as rather unrealistic and <laughs> called it Cary's pleasing dream, something that would never actually happen. Um, so it's somewhat fortuitous in a way that uh, in 1910 there did happen what was not in fact a gathering of all denominations of Christians but a, a gathering of representatives of Western missionary societies mm-hmm. um, gathered together to think about the problems of evangelizing the world in this generation which was the great phrase of the student volunteer movement for foreign missions. Um, but one can certainly make the connection and say that Carey would no doubt have been pleased to have seen such a gathering. So the, uh, the Edinburgh Missionary Con- World Missionary Conference of 1910 has in fact been the subject of my most recent book, which I published at the end of 2009, and I was working on that for the best part of 10 years, as surprisingly very little had been written about the World Missionary Conference Um, certainly nothing that used for primary sources that are available. So that took quite a lot of very interesting historical research over the last decade. Now, we often associate uh, that event and all that came out of it with the rise of what we call the modern ecumenical movement, this movement for common ground, Christian unity. Uh, Is that a legitimate uh, linkage? And if so, what are the various pointers toward that movement? It's a linkage that makes a lot of sense retrospectively when you look back and can trace lines of genealogy stretching from Edinburgh 1910 to uh, modern ecumenical institutions above all the World Council of Churches um, formed at Amsterdam in 1948. The chairman of the World Missionary Conference in 1910, John R. Mott, was also the honorary chairman of the uh, inaugural assembly of the WCC in in 1948. Um, But it's important to emphasize that the Edinburgh Conference was a missionary conference. It was not a conference about ecumenism in any institutional sense. 
If it had been, the Church of England, for a start, wouldn't have participated, as they were very frightened, actually, of any talk of church union. The more Catholic end of the Anglican communion was was quite insistent. There should be no discussion of matters of doctrine or church order. So those were strictly off the agenda. So it was a conference about how Protestant Christians and only Protestant Christians should collaborate more effectively in bringing the gospel to the world. But out of that purpose came the inescapable fact that in Asia the divisions between Christians were such a liability to a tiny minority church in places like China and India that not simply Western missionaries but some of the new Christian leaders uh, from the Indian and Chinese churches were saying we will never be able to commend Christ effectively in our context so long as we are exporting a a denominationally branded form of Christianity. So out of the gathering together at Edinburgh came this, this sense that we cannot continue to export a peculiarly Western understanding of Christian identity. So that was the real agenda. And from the Edinburgh Conference came uh, institutions like the International Review of Missions, the first serious mission periodical in the English language, which began in, in 1912, which continues to this day as the International Review of Mission. The International Missionary Council was formed in 1921 as a direct result of the Edinburgh Conference and ultimately the International Missionary Council did become part of the WCC. But uh, the WCC does have other origins as well as the Edinburgh Conference. The, The life and work movement, for example, which came much more out of reflection on the First World War rather than specifically out of the Edinburgh Conference. Looking back uh, the past century since Edinburgh 1910, uh, what are some of the important changes that have taken place in the missionary movement uh, since that time that we are aware of today? Well, there there are enormous changes. I mean, the the Edinburgh Conference, as I said, was a conference of delegates of Western Missionary Societies. There were about 1,215 delegates present, of whom no more than latest count about 20 came from the non-western world whom 19 were from Asia and one from Africa so it was an overwhelmingly white and western gathering and that did to a fair extent describe the state of world Christianity at the time as something that was predominantly western with its centres of gravity in the western world today of course world Christianity has really been decentered. We sometimes talk of the southward shift in the global centre of gravity of Christianity, and there's truth in that. But I prefer to talk in terms of decentering. There is now a, a multinodal pattern of Christianity mm. where you have all sorts of clusters of Christian strength uh, in all continents, and from those clusters or nodes of Christian strength come missionary movements travelling in all directions. So that whereas in 1910 the direction of mission was primarily from west to east and from north to south, now the direction of mission is plural and diverse. So one can talk about multi-directional missionary traffic. 
which is an interesting concept because when you have multi-directional traffic, you're likely to have collisions. And, <laughs> and I think that's actually what we're seeing today mm -hmm. as different understandings of Christian mission and different cultural expressions of Christianity come and rub up against each other, um, sometimes in quite uncomfortable ways. So, in a way, the model has moved from the West to the rest to from everywhere to everyone. Yes, mission is from everywhere to everywhere. Having said that, there is still an overwhelming concentration of the material resources for mission in the North and the West, but a disjunction between those material resources and arguably where many of the spiritual resources are. So whereas, whereas in 1910 you could have said that we were still living off the legacy of the evangelical revivals in Britain and North America, which were fueling the missionary movement uh, alongside the enormous material and political power that a country like Britain had in 1910. Today, the material and economic power behind the world Christian movement to a large extent still resides particularly in North America, but many of the spiritual resources are elsewhere. Uh, and I think it's that disjunction which creates some, some of the challenges in the world Christian movement today. It raises the whole question of can there be a proper spiritually balanced symbiosis between the resources that are still, as you say, more on one side of the ledger and the spiritual dynamism perhaps that's elsewhere, or are we locked into some kind of uh, permanent paternalism? Yes, I, I think as the direction of mission becomes much more diverse, um, these challenges are having to be worked through. Uh, movements of human migration are very much part of the picture, so that in almost every city in the Northern Hemisphere now, we have ethnic churches representing something of the vitality of world Christianity. So we have Korean churches and Chinese churches and Nigerian churches and Ghanaian churches in our cities in North America and Europe. The challenge, I think, that they face is actually not that different from the challenge which European or American settler churches faced in the past. Those churches in the past may have talked a great deal about their missionary responsibility to indigenous populations, but they weren't necessarily very good at working that out in practice, and they remain primarily settler churches. Something of the same, I think, is true of many of the Asian and African churches in the North today. They may have a quite genuine sense of mission and compulsion to evangelize, for example, the new dark continent of Europe. But in practice, many of them find it difficult to break out of their particular ethnic confines and share what they have to offer with the indigenous Christians mm -hmm. of Europe and North America. So the same sort of issues of Christianity and culture, which northern missionaries faced in the past as they went south are now being faced by southern missionaries as they travel north. The year 2010 was the 100th anniversary of Edinburgh, and it was marked by 
two international conferences that received quite a lot of attention in the press, one in Edinburgh itself and the other in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, the Lausanne Conference. Could you talk about those two events and how they might reflect both uh, opportunities and tensions? Yes, I mean, in point of fact, there were several conferences last year. There was also one in Boston and there was one in Seoul associated with uh, the late Ralph Winter's network of frontier missions. So a number of different organizations felt that they wished to celebrate the centenary of 1910. The Edinburgh Conference was the most diverse in that it was intended to reflect the whole breadth of world Christianity. So it had representatives from the whole ecclesiastical spectrum, from Eastern Orthodox to Pentecostal. It was also one of the smallest because it was very difficult to fund. It was sometimes misrepresented as being the WCC event, but it wasn't a WCC event. It was um, deliberately designed to be uh, an event that covered the whole spectrum. And so there were evangelicals involved in organizing it as well as WCC people. It inevitably, because it had such a wide spectrum had to come up with a sort of statements that those those sorts of events do where you're having to find words that people from across the ecclesiastical spectrum can agree with. The Lausanne Congress in Cape Town in 2010 I wasn't able to attend but uh, would have been fascinated to attend. It was certainly the largest by far of all the events that took place in 2010 celebrating the centenary. One of the sad things about it was that the majority of the Chinese delegation were not able to attend because mm. the Chinese government intervened at the last moment to prevent them attending, those from the non-registered churches in China. I think if you look at the statements of the two together, Edinburgh and Cape Town, the overwhelming impression probably is that they're not so far apart as one might have expected or certainly as they would have been 20 or 30 years previously. So that if you go back to the 1960s and 1970s, ecumenical, main, mainline ecumenical and conservative evangelical parishes to mission were, were really quite contrasting and if not in, in direct antagonism. I think in 2010 was considerably less of a divergence. One of the reasons for that, paradoxically, is actually there is more divergence within each of those families, so that both within evangelicalism and with the within the mainstream ecumenical movement, there is considerably more debate and disagreement mm -hmm. uh, within those uh, constituencies than once there was. If I could ask you a little bit about the Center for World Christianity mm. you're affiliated with yeah. at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah. What is your mission? What do you do there? The Center for the Study of World Christianity, as it's now called, was originally set up in 1982 by Professor Andrew Walls, great missionary scholar and historian particularly of African Christianity. It was set up in the University of Aberdeen and then moved to Edinburgh in 1987. And Andrew's vision originally was very much that the new exploding Christianity of the Southern Hemisphere needed bibliographical resources. But there were very few libraries anywhere uh, in the world that were deliberately collecting materials to chart this new Christian movement in the Global South. So he began to collect bibliographical materials and in turn that attracted research students to come and work and do their doctoral studies. So large numbers of particularly African students 
came to work under Andrew. And if you go throughout the world today in many of the theological institutions, you will find people who did their doctoral studies uh, in the centre. I've been there only since 2009. Um, I changed the name from the Centre for the Study of Christianity in the non-Western world (laughs) to Centre for the Study of World Christianity. The latter is easier to say, but there was also, I think, a a reason behind it that I think it's no longer appropriate to define majority world Christianity primarily in terms of what it isn't Western, but uh, in the global Uh, interlocking world in in which we live, in which mission is flowing and people are flowing in all directions, it makes more sense simply to talk about world Christianity because we have African Christianity in the United States, we have Chinese Christianity in Britain, it's it's everywhere now. Today in our chapel service here at Beeson Divinity School, you brought a very challenging message to us with a fascinating title. Could you summarize the title and then say just a little bit about what you uh, were able to share with us today? I was talking about great omissions in understanding the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Um, So often Protestant Christians have honed in on Matthew 28 for the uh, basis of their understanding of missionary motivation, and that's not a bad thing, but to understand the basis for mission in a more holistic way, I think we have to look not simply at Matthew 28, but at the witness of Scripture as a whole. Within the text itself, some of the themes I was talking about were the importance of discipleship, that the commission is a call to disciples to go and teach others to be disciples rather than simply a call to make converts. The evangelical tradition has majored on conversion for good reasons and I wouldn't want to downplay conversion But I think if we go further back in Protestant history, if we go back to the Anabaptists, the Anabaptists talked a lot about discipleship, Mm. not simply about conversion. Discipleship is about taking up one's cross and following in the footsteps of Jesus. And it seems to me that is the essence of what the church is called to go out and summon people to do. And therefore... In mission, the church is always in a state of learning, learning what it means to follow Christ as it invites others to join in that learning process. And that means not going out in a spirit of domination. So much of my work as a historian of Christian mission is concerned with trying to counter the very widespread assumption, particularly in the secular scholarship, that the missionary movement was all about the baptizing of Western domination of the rest of the world. Well, there has been a lot of that. I would be the first to admit that. But an authentic understanding of Christian mission that is marked by Christ-likeness is about servanthood, not domination. And if the authority in mission, as Matthew 28 says belongs to Christ and not to us, then it means that uh, in the way in which we do mission, we rely on the Spirit who is, who is the one who communicates the authority of Christ to us in mission. And it's not our authority, it's his. 
One of the points you made that I found fascinating was a new idea to me, really. You connected something that was happening during the Third Reich with the German Christians and their focus on blood and soil with a more recent effort in church growth in our own country. Talk a little bit about that connection, if you could just summarize what you said. Well, the Germans were the first, really, to develop a modern understanding of culture, our cultures in the plural, uh, the idea that different peoples have their own distinct way of being, their own distinct pattern of customs and practices, their own mentality, and we have a lot to thank them for for that because it helped us to understand the enormous richness of diversity in world humanity rather than trying to squeeze everything into one sort of enlightenment framework. The problem about too exaggerated an emphasis on that is is that certain German missiologists began to talk of each nation having its own culture in such an absolute sense that uh, they began to apply it to their own nation so that there was a distinctively Germanic way of being Christian, almost a Germanic religion, uh, which was developed by some theorists under Hitler, uh, grounded in the sort of blut and boden, the blood and soil of German national identity. And some of the most progressive German missiologists actually ended up as supporters of the Nazi regime for that reason. Now, what I was talking about in the sermon was the way in which in India, the famous uh, missiologist Donald McGavran, who was a Disciples of Christ missionary for many years in India, began to take some of these ideas and to use them to reflect on what was happening in the Indian context, where people were moving towards Christ as collective entities and not just as individuals. And in a sense, quite rightly, McGavran realised that in the caste context of India, the gospel was not going to make much headway simply by targeting individuals. It was a case of trying to encourage groups to move in their natural collectivities towards Christ. So there was a, a lot to commend about what he said. The danger is that it tends to absolutize culture uh, above the gospel. And so... The church growth school of thinking, which developed from Donald McGavran, has always had the danger of so absolutizing culture that if you're not careful, you can end up with a form of ecclesiastical apartheid Mm -hmm. in which different cultural and ethnic groups remain in their own monocultural churches and never really experience the richness of the body of Christ to which we are called. And it does seem to me uh, that the commission that Christ has given to the church is to encourage us to go out from the beginning and to make disciples from all nations, teaching them to live together within the body of Christ. Dr. Stanley, what advice would you give about world Christianity to those who are preparing to be ministers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century? Wow. Um, That's the last question. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question. I think for those of us who live in the North and who come from the North, we have to learn to be receivers, to learn what it means to be recipients of mission as well as givers of mission to learn to be thankful for our great heritage of mission in the past, but also to be discriminating about that, and to be willing 
to share with the newer Christians from the north what we can give to them, but also what they can give to us uh, in terms of their spiritual vitality and the fact that much of the Christianity of the South is Christianity that's rooted amongst those who are poor, um, who are relatively powerless, who are actually much closer to the Christianity of the New Testament than most of us in the North are. And so their insights into what the gospel means are probably rather closer to what we read about in the gospels when Jesus talked about the good news for the poor than many of us are used to in the North. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Brian Stanley. He is Professor of World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh, one of the leading scholars in the field of missiology. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And now here with a special announcement is our Beeson Director of Admissions, Sherry Brown. I want to invite everyone that is interested in Beeson Divinity School to our preview day. The preview day for this fall is Friday, September the 16th. It's a day-long opportunity for you to learn more information about Beeson than you might be reading on the website, but also an opportunity to attend a class, to meet with current students over lunch. We also give tours that day. We also give you opportunities to meet with faculty. Most importantly, if you have not yet completed your application interview, that's a great time to do that as well and just to have an opportunity to spend the whole day with our staff, faculty, and students. You can register online at our website, which is www.beesondivinity.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational, evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.